Oliver Dixon on SAFM. Let's see if we can hear Christy now. Christy, good morning. Yes, here I am. Much, from much, much from Much, much, much clearer. Thank you so much for joining us. Really, really an honor and a pleasure having this conversation with you. Really good to be with you, Oliver, this, this morning. And uh, I'm, I'm very excited about, uh, about the book receiving this kind of attention uh, on, on our public broadcast. Uh, also because I think it's very important to bridge the gap you know, yeah. between uh, academic work and, and um, the people of South Africa. Mm-hmm. I, I was a little bit worried about this book resonating with a lot of our listeners because when I started reading it, the, 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 the book reading may not sound like it, but when I started reading it, it read very much like an academic paper. Well, very, it, it is very much academic. The, uh, it is based on, on uh, research that I did as part of my doctoral degree at the University of Cape Town uh, about a decade ago. And this book itself appeared in 2017. Uh, it is not the, the same as my dissertation. I've, I've uh, reworked it quite a lot. Uh, the, uh, the section on uh, the current chapter, I think, that's being read on enclave nationalism, for example, is completely new. And uh, there's also something on Afrikaner masculinity that's completely new. But yes, it is, it's quite an academic work. But I, I think what what makes it uh, what what's given it a bigger appeal because I, I did launch the book r- literally across South Africa from Joburg to Pretoria to Durban to Cape Town, and and I've had um, a lot of uh, people who are not academics responding very positively, and I think it's also because the the book has a lot of quotations in, so yeah. I, I really let my my respondents speak with their own words, and and I think they you know that's where people start to identify and then the analysis which is um in in certain places very academic then makes more sense if you read it in relation to mm. these direct quotations mm. the, the 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 narrative tone of of your respondents uh, here is quite fascinating one particular respondent katrine is of great fascination to me and we'll get to her in a short while but this is a book uh, a deconstruction of white women Africana identity. The end of apartheid meant that a lot of people had to look deeply, a lot of communities had to look deep within and figure out how they're going to re-identify and redefine themselves. And I get the sense from reading this book that white Afrikaans women had a really tough time reimagining themselves and finding a place in, in what became what at the time called the New South Africa. Yes, look, at it, it, it's a massive uh, rupture if you think about it. The, uh, you know, going from a, a, a basically an authoritarian system such as apartheid, even if you are a member of a privileged class, to, to then uh, move into democracy with everything that, that uh, all the potential and possibility that democracy presents for you, it's a, it's a massive, massive change. And so for, and for some, pe- some people, it's a, a nightmare because they, uh, particularly uh, privileged uh, people who've, who've enjoyed uh, white privilege historically through colonialism and apartheid. For them, it can be a nightmare. But you also actually find people, privileged white people, who are, in fact, who, find it, who found it um, liberating, who found it a great release from the previous system. Because, you know, we, we think always of apartheid uh, specifically in terms of, of race. And, of course, racial oppression was a big part of it. But also, there's also a system actually of gender oppression, class oppression, yeah. sexual oppression, and so forth. So within Afrikanerdom, women were always, you know, in a, in a secondary place. So as a woman, you were on the receiving end of of 
of you know a particular kind of position of uh, 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 and, and also violence. Um, you couldn't you couldn't aspire to certain things in life. It, it was not for you to to have that. Your first function in the world was was to be a mother, and and if you didn't want to pursue that, then there was something wrong with you, and you would be mm. put under incredible amount of pressure. Some of it's very negative, and and it, there would also be violence involved, and you know, in in that pressure. Mm. So for some women, and and that's why this book actually gives you the full range. So so you get those women who who were very upset by the transition from apartheid, who were who their lives were they felt that their lives were were turned upside down in a um, in a bad way, and then you found those women who for them it was freedom for the first time. Mm. They could suddenly express themselves in ways that were completely impossible mm. during apartheid mm. and colonialism. Mm. Quite aptly, the book begins with uh, a chapter and a reflection on Ingrid Jonker, uh, in the shadow of Ingrid Jonker. And, and that transition that you just outlined over there, it seems like Nelson Mandela was quite astute to it in, in, in ways that were, was perhaps uh, visionary and forward-looking because... He begins, uh, in, he reflects on, 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 on Ingrid Juncker in his first State of the Nation address uh, in the opening of Parliament in 1994. And I want to read this passage here because it's, 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 so, it's, it's, it's so fascinating. Mandela re-remembers Afrikaans poet Ingrid Juncker and poignantly, poignantly referred to her as a glorious vision of possibilities of identification. He says... She was both a poet and a South African. She was both an Afrikaner and an African. She was both an artist and a human being. In the midst of despair, she celebrated hope. Confronted by death, she asserted the beauty of life. She instructs that our endeavors must be about the liberation of the woman, the emancipation of the man, and the liberty of the child. Mandela, Mandela draws on this, as a as sort of, as you describe in the book, as a way of welcoming the Afrikaans women into the conversation about renew into the conversation about you're a part of this country um, and this is your moment. Do you want to reflect on that chapter a little bit? Yeah, so uh, it struck me at the time, as you say, that uh, that Nelson Mandela, as we know, is an incredibly himself a visionary leader, a very astute statesman as well. He, uh, you know, some people say he was a sellout. I think... Um, Quite the opposite. I think that he was he was somebody who who read the politics of the time extremely well. He was uh, politically um, very strategic, and he understood at that time because we were on on the verge of of um, of a bloody civil war in the early 1990s, and people tend to forget that. Uh, and he understood at the time that it was important to to draw Afrikaners in in a specific way. But what was interesting to me, and that's, that, of course, we know that history with Constant Fulyun and how mm. he managed to, to uh, after the invasion of, of Pobutatswana and, and so forth, how the, uh, the white right um, started to shift their position. And Nelson Mandela was pivotal in shifting the white right at that point and, and preventing further bloodshed. But, the, but in terms of Afrikaner women, so it's interesting to me that he then, um, in, the, in this, his, his very first address in Parliament as... as our new president at the time, you know, he decides to highlight Afrikaner women specifically. And and Afrikaner women are people who, if you think about um, the apartheid years, they sort of disappeared into the background. Um, uh, the, the face of apartheid, if you think today, 
the first of apartheid was very much that of an Afrikaner man. You know, you think of P.W. Boeta, B.J. Foster, H.F. Verwoerd, all of those guys. Uh, you don't, uh, it's difficult, I think, if, if one would say to somebody, you know, conjure, you know, think of a woman that you associate, an Afrikaner woman that you associate with apartheid. People will probably, you know, have a bit of a difficulty to, to land on somebody. I think mm. Rina Fenter probably gets the closest to that, but most people can't remember anymore. She was... Um, Health minister there the, in the late eighties, so um, so so you've got this obscure group of people that have been obscured by by um, history and specifically Afrikaner nationalism because Afrikaner nationalism put Afrikaner women back in the home. Afrikaner women are they an interesting group in the sense that they were much more politically active in the first half of the twentieth century than in the second half. Normally we think, oh, you're politically active, you become more and more and more politically active. Afrikaner nationalism managed to actually put women back into the home and uh, through apartheid put women back in the home. So they became completely obscure. So from that point of view, then for Nelson Mandela to specifically highlight um, Afrikaner women, but but putting then before them, you know, this uh, figure of Ingrid Jonker, who was was extremely courageous at the time. You know, her father was a an apartheid senator. And she went directly against her father with her work. He he rejected her. He was extremely abusive towards Ingrid Jonker, and um and uh, and she committed suicide in her early thirties. Mm-hmm. You know, so she's quite a sad figure in that sense. But she was also an incredibly courageous figure. She's most well known for her poem, um, uh, that the child that was shot dead at at Nyanga, uh, which is uh, a poem. It's actually about black liberation. And this she wrote in the early, in early 1960s. So that's quite something for an Afrikaner, to, uh, Afrikaner woman to have done. And then Nelson Mandela basically reminding Afrikaner women, this, this is how things can be for you under democracy. Because Ingrid Jonker didn't have the, the, um, the possibilities that, that democracy um, presents in her life. You know? So she took her own life in the end. She was very much stigmatized, marginalized. And, uh, you know, in, in terms of her father's uh, circles. So, um, but, but now things are different, you know, from, so I think Mandela's message was things are different now, that there are different ways to be in the world. And I, and I must say, I do, uh, in my book um, and in my study uh, on Afrikaner women, I found a lot of Afrikaner women who, who were embracing exactly that. Give us a call if you want to be a part of this conversation, 086-000-2032. You can also send us your WhatsApp voice notes on um, 0614-104-107. And if you give us a call, my apologies, I swapped those numbers around. It's 086-000-2032. Let's take a quick break and we continue on the other side of this. SAFM, let's talk. Oliver Dixon on SAFM. 25 minutes after 10 a.m., you are listening to The Talking Point. I'm in conversation with Christy van der Veste, an author of Sitting Pretty. Christy, speaking about Mandela using uh, Ingrid as, 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 a, as a sort of as a totem of hopefulness of what could be um, as, as, as far as inclusiveness is concerned, I can't help but contrast um, you know, that moment against other white Afrikaans women who may not have been Ingrid Jonker. If you think about, for instance, it's hard to put a, a, a white woman face to apartheid in the way that you would a white man's face, right? But there are Afrikaans women who who struggled with, with, with that transition, who are not Ingrid Jonker. I think here about uh, Marika de Klerk, for instance, uh, publicly saying that Mandela's trying to embarrass her and her husband uh, by 
with the, with a dispute about over where they should have stayed, for instance, uh, or even just the identity of Betty Verwurt fading into the background uh, and, and, and becoming, a, you know, sort of like an obscure bubble um, that's just there for photo ops alongside uh, PW. Um, that, that, that contrast, that, that could you, and I'm, and I'm asking you to, to speculate, was it the case that white Afrikaans women saw Mandela's invitation as part of a moral uh, impugning on their identities? Well, as I said, uh, you, you, you basically find different responses. So for a lot of uh, women, yes, this was a liberatory moment. Definitely for me, for, for many, uh, many, many people that I've come, uh, come into contact with over the years through my work and uh, through my, my research. And, uh, but then you do, as you say, Oliver, you do have those women and men, uh, you know, Afrikaners or white English speaking, who found it very hard to, to transition from, from apartheid. And, and, uh, and that's why, in a sense, we also we, we can't speak of a, of a complete break between apartheid and now. We, we, and when we say that, we always talk about the fact that the structural conditions of apartheid are very much still with us. And we can just see that in our apartheid geographies, for example, mm. you know, with the, where, where the townships are in, in relation to, to the cities still and so on. Our middle class areas are perhaps a bit more integrated, but, but um, we can still see those apartheid geographies very starkly. But it also happened at a more personal level. That, but in, in the research, we talk about the, the subjective level, where people, for some people, to actually to to get your, to, you know, to reorientate yourself um, out of what you have been socialized into. So all South Africans, you know, have been socialized into race thinking, and to see everything through the lens of race. And and for white people specifically, they are socialized into thinking that they're superior on the basis of of pigmentation, and and uh, phenotype and those kinds of things. So, mm. and and this is um, so for people who are who are deeply committed to this idea of their superiority based on what they look like, for them it 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 was very tough, and it has been tough. Yeah. Um, but interestingly, more recent studies, uh, for example, Roger Southall has recently brought out a book on, on white people in South Africa. And he, f- he finds, and, and some other research is also showing that, that, that white South Africans have finally, uh, by and large, decided that it's better to live in democracy than in apartheid. Mm. So, so we can see it. It took, it took, it took some, some people a very long time. But, it, but you are seeing that white people have finally made that shift he calls them, uh, uh, or he calls us, uh, reluctant d- Democrats, mm-hmm. but they have become <laughs> Democrats, basically. I want to read but this. It's, it's, yeah, yeah, I it's, want to read it's, this passage uh, that, that that sort of speaks to a little bit of what you're speaking about right now. You're right uh, here. Afrikaner identity failed to shift with global hegemonic whiteness when the latter sh- when the latter shifted away from on-the-ground colonialism to more intricate but less visible forms of le- neo-colonialism in the mid-20th century. The genesis of apartheid was driven by a hankering for order in which race was the primary ordering principle and category for the defense of the social and moral order. Afrikanerhood reeled from the moral blow when official apartheid ended under a cloud of condemnation, especially when the international move against apartheid from the 1960s onwards exposed Afrikaans' white identity identity as, again, not good enough 
and morally suspect. That that's 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 an important piece of of, of, of an important passage that that I think sums up quite well that that why it was so difficult for that transition to take place, because it wasn't we don't want to trans uh, go into this transition. Many didn't want to, as as you as you just pointed out now, but are quite okay with with the status quo now. But many were against it because their identity was seen as not good enough and morally suspect. And dealing with that moral, uh, I'll call it dirtiness, uh, that the world bestowed on Afrikaans people altogether must have been really, really, really difficult to process uh, psychologically, personally. And the personal is political. And so it, it, it exposed a great deal of their own politics. I want you to reflect on this just a little bit. But before you do that, Christy, it's half past 10. Let's take your news headlines. Oliver Dixon on SAFM. I'm in conversation with Christy van Veste, an author of Sitting Pretty. Christy, before I went to the break, I read that passage there, and 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 I prefaced it as a question about a potential explanation, while well, a explanation for why so many white people, in particular white Afrikaans women, struggled with the transition from apartheid to democracy. But surreptitiously, I'm trying to position it as a contemporary question. I speak about race a lot because race in this country and our racialized uh, society is inescapable, right? Um, That moral Mm. suspect uh, implication that conversations about race and the condemnation thereof presents, is that the explanation for why so many white people today run away from the race conversation or see it as race bashing or see it as an unnecessary public speak? Yeah, I think that the question of race is is always difficult for white people to confront because uh, if you think about it, uh, white people it's a, it's basically an identity that's constructed as as superior through the concept of race uh, and and through and through racism then racism as 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 a particular form of of prejudice and um, disad- disadvantaging and oppression etc uh, etc et based on on race. So white people have benefited from uh, racial inequality, and that's why it's difficult, uh, but most white people become defensive when confronted with this. I think it's similar to men. If you confront men about patriarchy yeah. or you confront heterosexuals about homophobia yes. and, and so forth. So um, so I think that's that's part of it. With Afrikaners specifically, it's interesting to see. So I, I, in, in the book, I make an argument that shame has actually been a productive mm. emotion for mm. Afrikaners because... One can see from the 1960s onwards, Afrikaners become more and more ashamed about apartheid. And and what's happening is is that they become ashamed in the eyes of the global north. So basically, the Afrikaner identity was always an aspirational and still is an aspirational identity. It's aspiring to... Uh, to whiteness as you see it in the global north, you know, as mm, you see it in the United mm. States, particularly, but also to a lesser extent, uh, Britain and and uh, Europe and so on. So that, that's that's, and then uh, through the the shift, if you think of of the shifts in the mid twentieth century, United Nations adopted the Declaration of Human Rights. Uh, you had uh, your colonial powers withdrawing from the African continent. So, and so you have this process of decolonization happening. And then the position shifts also in relation to South Africa. And, and the, the pressure was on for South mm. Africa to also make those shifts. Mm. But Afrikaners didn't make those shifts at the time. And, and, but, and they, and, but, but very soon it became a morally very problematic position for, for them to sustain. And I make the argument based on my research that, that in fact 
towards, uh, you know, throughout the 70s and 80s, it started to really, there was a, a, a more and more critical mass of Afrikaners, still a, a minority, but among journalists, among writers, poets, uh, creative people, intellectuals and so on, who had, who had shifted away from apartheid and who became actually, who adopted an anti-apartheid position. Mm, mm. And it was because of the fact that, that they lost all moral um, credence. And, and because this is, it's actually a, a sad tale uh, in a sense that you have the Afghanis are actually like a, a very good example of victims becoming perpetrators because the original um, humiliation uh, that that happened to Afrikaners through the South African War of 1899 to 1902, where they and and the subsequent a, a attempts at, at Anglicisation, you know, through the through British uh, by British imperialists uh, and so on, that humiliation caused a, a wound that one could say partly is responsible also for for the turn to apartheid. Mm, that mm. doesn't justify it, but it's it's a way of understanding how yeah. humiliation upon humiliation can actually cause people to, to turn into perpetrators and um, and that's why I think for a lot of Afrikaners they have they have shifted they have yeah. actually realized that they that this is, it's an unsustainable um, position morally speaking but then you do you, you've got those diehards that hold on and the, the Trump supporters uh, and so forth and so on yeah. who are still also with us Afrikaans identity Afrikaner identity is is prefaced on a number of things language being one of those right white Afrikaner identity is premised on the Afrikaans language you write here, reworked by Afrikaner nationalism to be the key cultural expression of the great folk, but still containing traces of its historical association of being the language of the underprivileged. Hovering between these two poles, Afrikaner identity is produced through its, calm, its claim to speaking Afrikaans and the routine rel relinquishing of social space to English. I want to stop there. That relinquishing really into social space of English is an interesting uh, concept for me there as you speak about the global north in, 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 in uh, being a source of shame for white Afrikaners here. But you say here that uh, just as a sidebar for my own for my own political reasons, I want you to zo zoom in on this, the association of being the language of the underprivileged. That was what Afrikaans was. Just give us the historical a breakdown of Afrikaans as the language of the unprivileged, underprivileged. You know, so Afrikaans, if you, the first written form of Afrikaans is actually in Arabic in the very early 19th century, uh, but, and, and it was found in prayer books in, in what was then the, the Cape Colony, so um, today's Western Cape. So you actually found, because Afrikaans basically developed as a language, as a kind of a lingua franca, that um, that enslaved people used to communicate with their owners, and and so it's a, an adaptation of Dutch, but it also very strongly has um, uh, a strong influence from from Indonesian languages. Because remember, many of of, of the enslaved people who who landed up in in um, Cape Town were from Indonesia, and also from from several of our you know from also from from our Khoi languages, our San languages. And so forth, and then of course there's English influences, other uh, European language influences, and so forth. So this this language is actually constructed by disempowered um, people as a way to to express themselves in the early 19th century, and that's the actual origins. And then what you see is, and 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 this is you know nationalism in that sense um, can be a, a, it's a very it's a kind of a an ideology that that works as a kind of a scavenger ideology. Mm. You know, it looks 
always for for various resources. So, and language, of course, is very important in, in nationalism. Mm. So, so one could say, kind of, as a scavenger ideology, you know, Afrikaner nationalism then pounced on on Afrikaans, and then in the early twentieth century, you see a kind of a claiming of Afrikaans by white people. But but the speakers of Afrikaans at that point were definitely not only white. You know, as we know, it was um, by and large actually the 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 people who then became ca- categorized as as colored under apartheid. So, um, but Afrikaner nationalists actually, in a sense, extracted the language, took over the language away from its original speakers, and pretended that it was actually a completely white language, mm. which it, it definitely wasn't. Uh, you do you do have that period of in the 20s and 30s and 40s of of the standardization of Afrikaans, where they tried to Europeanize Afrikaans, and um, but those uh, Indonesian influences, for example, in the word buyer, you know, buyer, which means a, a lot, lot. Um, those Indonesian influences are still with pisong is another word, you know, words that are that are that are still strongly part of the language, mm-hmm. and and without which the language can't exist. So that actually shows you the true origins of of the language. What did the uh, you know, the taking up of social spaces of English do to the Afrikaner di- identity? Yeah. So so the uh, as I said earlier, so the Afrikaners have an aspirational identity where they, they always feel inferior in relation to white English-speaking South Africans to start with, but then also... Um, <laughs> I laugh at that because <laughs> I, went to an, <laughs> I went to an English medium school in an Afrikaans town and uh, the Afrikaans teachers who held on to the language always condemned the Afrikaans woman who started speaking English uh, by saying, Well, there you go. So that, that Actually, that's a perfect example because there is a sense of... That that English-speaking people, you know, have got their noses in the air about Afrikaners, um, but this is a historic uh, historical animosity that obviously goes back to to the 19th century through the war, then the early early 20th century, those Anglicisation campaigns that were driven against the Afrikaners and so on, that made them extremely resentful, and it actually spurred on Afrikaner nationalism. But then, uh, as Afrika- those Afrikaner nationalists are then the ones who took over in 1948, and then they really tried to entrench their position. Um, at the expense of English-speaking people. And that's why at that time you also see how English-speaking whites are kicked out of the civil service mm-hmm. and so forth, you know, as a kind of, um, one could almost say kind of a revenge. Yeah. yeah. And um, But the, but this feeling, I, I, I didn't actually look for this at all when I did my research because for me, you know, in terms of my own background, which is, um, uh, you know, I've got English, English-speaking grandmother, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it wasn't a, um, I didn't think it was a thing, really, to, to, to yeah. put it that way. Yeah. But then it came through from our respondents. I mean, I was, I was quite surprised, actually, to see how strong these resentments and these grievances still run up to this day and the sense of inferiority. And, you know, this, and these are Johannesburg um, uh, Afrikaners. So you would, you would imagine in Johannesburg, you know, these are sophisticated upper middle class mm. people, educated, etc., etc., and still there's this thing that comes through. Oh, but I can, you know, I can really speak English very well, you know. Mm, so mm. Um, to try and to try and show, look, you know, I'm I'm not less than. I I, I do actually have have a place um, mm, mm. Uh, equal to you. But it actually it points to that inferiority complex. Yeah. That seems to still be there. Still seem to be remnants left of it. The end of apartheid. Uh, was a big knock to Afrikaans men in particular. They felt it to be emasculating as, an, as, as a moment of emasculation. What did that do to Afrikaner femininity? 
white women in the household and here you start you begin to explore the concept of default mother uh, an interesting passage uh, from Katrin, one of your respondents says, I'm not married and experienced the pressure extremely the uh, pressure extremely strongly in Cape Town, especially because I work with children. It's the parents first need to know uh, the, it is the parents who first need to know that you are married and have children. Yvonne asks her. And if you are married and you don't have children, that becomes an issue. Katrina res- Katrin responds and says that is the Afrikaans culture. Very typical. If you don't go that way, there's something wrong with you. And I'm at that point where I say, if only I was married and divorced, because it seems more acceptable. The next question is, were you married? And if you say no, look, then there's something seriously wrong with you. Why is that so important? Yeah, it's uh, this is uh, that's why in, in one of my um, addresses that I've t- delivered, um, I speak of the lives of the Volksmutter. You know that the Volksmutter actually has had multiple lives, and she's still, you know, with us. So the Volksmutter is basically a kind of a, a symbol that was used in Afrikaner nationalism to tell women what is the right way of being a woman, and and the the, the correct way of being a woman is is as is uh, described in that. Uh, section that you've just read, Oliver, So, which is you basically uh, must be verified through a relationship with a man. There's no, there's no other option. You know, in the first place, to, to, a real woman is a woman in a relationship with a man. In Afrikanerdom, it's very important that she must be married. Can't just be any, you know. It can't just be so. Heteronormativity is the cornerstone of that identity. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and this is look. This is not unusual for nationalism. So I should add, you know, you've got the mother of the nation image, as well in, in African nationalism, and and in other nationalisms. So it's not unusual, but it takes very particular forms depending on which, which culture you look at. You know? mm. So, um, so there's this. Um, thing that you must be you must be an essential identity identity is verified by being in a relationship with a man and you have to be married to that man and then when you're married you have to have children and uh. one child is not enough etc uh, etc et and in a sense you you always have to show that this is actually your true aspiration in life even and when it's not yeah so so for a lot of women it, it was actually interesting to see the kind of psychological struggles that many women have because some women in, in my study as well, you know, they're not able to have children and the kind of, of judgment that they are subjected to. And what was interesting also is that you would think in the democratic era these kinds of things would would be um, less of, of, of an issue, but I think it's actually being used more to to try and, and push Afrikaner women back into the home. So, so there are Afrikaner women who who basically they pursue professions. I mean, they they uh, get a degree, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But there's a certain point when they know, okay, I have to let go of my of my career now because otherwise, you know, I become suspect in the eyes of of my family and friends, mm. and and that's when they actually. So so then you have a kind of a halting of the career, and the person then becomes you know goes into into motherhood for a period of time. And then uh, some of them can't wait to get back into into their professional lives, but they can't even say that because that then also makes them suspect as as women. Because a, a, a true woman, a real woman, is is somebody who who wants to be married with a man or to a man rather. And have was that children, a response to know? the fragility of white masculinity, white Afrikaner masculinity? So, yeah, definitely. It was interesting to me how some of uh, my uh, particularly successful Respondents, women who who are successful career 
professionals who they kind of try to to downplay their success also in relation to their husbands and then they they would emphasize certain things you know well you know he's still the protector you know like they're trying to find something that he can still do that that they can't do kind mm, of thing you know mm. so they they'll be looking they'll be looking around you know for for ways to uh, and so what what you actually find and that's the interesting thing about the democratic era is that there's a kind of a propping up of Afrikaner masculinity mm. also by Afrikaner women. And there's particular particular um, Afrikaner women take it upon themselves to try and reinstate Afrikaner men because there's this whole notion of Afrikaner men uh, are, are in a sense victims of democracy. You know, mm. Uh, mm. We, we know that whole discourse around affirmative action, even though if you look today at the unemployment rates, the group with the lowest uh, unemployment uh, are still um, white men. So, but there's this whole thing of Afrikaner men and white men generally have suffered under democracy, mm. and and part of that um, discourse is, uh, or, or, or then the responsibility is taken up by white women, particularly Afrikaner women, then to mm. prop them up. And this whole idea of the husband as the king and the priest of the household. Yeah, you know? we, there's so much more to talk about and so many more <laughs> concepts to unpack, but time is not on our sides. I want us to take a quick break and come back straight into callers. Kondile and Mangahung, Katlejo in Cape Town, as well as Prophet OJ and Mafi King, I see you. I've got a number of, Christy, this is so popular. We have an endless slew of voice notes over here. But before we do that, let's take a quick break. Oliver Dixon on SAFM. Good day, Oliver. Would you please ask our guests there, like with Africaners regarded as, uh, yeah, morally dirty then? Uh, is it still the same with the emergency of Afri Forum, since it seems like they are the ones who are resisting the change that has happened and the transition? This is Nati from Cape Town. Thank you. Good day, SFM. Good day, Christy. Great work, great writing. It's also a great reflection on the apartheid regime. I've always wondered how it came across to some of its beneficiaries, or maybe partly, I should say. I also think it's a great path to healing, the way you reflect on it sincerely. This is Nikki from Bloom. Thank you. Let's go to the lines. Uh, let's speak to Katlejo out in Cape Town. Katlejo, good morning. Morning. Um, I'm enjoying the conversation, but I'm I'm worried that it's veering as if we are washing away the sins of white women and their complicity in a bad mm, date. Mm. I think things like, um, no, you know, the face you imagine of a bad date is a white man and mm one cannot think of a woman with a, of a woman's face. Mm. And I'd like to completely disagree that as much as, yes, in terms of um, their femininity and their role within their own culture, they were maybe suppressed and maybe they were expected to stay at home and all of that. But what were they doing at home? Mm. You know, mm. They had mates, black mates. Mm. They had black nannies. They had gardeners and all of that. And what were they doing? What was their behavior where they could control? Because... As much as I understand Afrikaans, I'm not Afrikaans myself, but from what I've seen in my experience with them is that as much as the man might be abusive or whatever the case might be within their situation of who goes to work and who must stay home and take care of kids, which is a big thing in the Afrikaans nation, she mm. does have power within that state. Yeah, right? yeah. That, You're that's absolutely... 
you're absolutely right. I'm going to have to leave it there. Kwandile yeah. and, and, and Prophet Oji, I'm going to come to you very shortly. Christy, in a minute, you write about how mothers at home were pivotal in reproducing that prejudice. For instance, it was the mother that called the child away from the black kid when the black kid was playing with the white kid was playing with the black kid of the maid in the garden and that sort of stuff. In a minute, just reflect on that. Yes, uh, I haven't been able to get around to that explicitly, but in the book I describe uh, quite um, uh, in detail, you know, how these processes of of socialization into racism and sexism and so forth inside the home mm. works. And and the fact is that is it, for me the home. I'm, I'm a feminist, so the home is a political space. Mm. And as as white uh, as Afrikaner women were kicked out of a public sphere. They withdrew into the private sphere, but there they did the dirty work of apartheid inside the the home. Mm. So inside the family, inside the home, they were they were uh, socialising their children into those. And of course, uh, as Katlechos also pointed out, and also reproducing the racial relations, the the uh, you know from uh, uh, that's outside, also inside the home, and vice mm. versa. You know, it's an interactive kind of process. Uh, so also then in relation to black women working for white women in the home, black men working for white women, et cetera, et cetera. So, so that's, that's, um, the book has quite, um, quite an intense uh, um, uh, analysis of, mm. of all of those processes. Absolutely. Kondile in Mangaung. Thanks, Alex and, and Christy. Look, uh, one can, can pick it up, that it's, a, it, it's work that has long started. It's a very intense, uh, Christy, I must say, but the other good thing about it is that, you know, I don't know if, if Christy is a white uh, African woman, but it's always better when you have an African woman really presenting the story of uh, a, a, an African woman because you, you, you tend to get the, 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 the proper information and the, the, a bit of unbiased uh, presentation mm. of facts. Mm. Uh, so for me... Uh, that's what is important. But also, uh, whatever you have touched on, on the issue of language, I think she navigates with ease on the issue of language, but also introduces us to some of the interesting uh, concepts uh, of Africans, uh, things like your uh, honor, like hate. Yes, yes. That's, yeah. uh, yes. <laughs> I, 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 when I picked it up uh, during the the, the readings, I, I, it was something interesting. And for me, however uh, much as I had to order the book, I find it easy to follow uh, on an audio than, than, yeah, than so, reading. From a, yeah, some people example, do prefer that, yeah. Yes, for example, the, 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 the very same method that you're using on folks' murder uh, and what was happening there and, and, and how the, 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 the history and the meaning of folks' murder is. For me, it's, it, it, can, it comes out very clear on an audio. But one thing uh, 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 that I want to raise with uh, Christy is that clearly the, the white community, the greater part of white community hasn't changed. And uh, even the manner in which they, they presented the, the, the white women and the, the, the mannerism of white women that are still still, uh, you know, a bit of subject or submissive mm. uh, and succumb to materialism. For me, it, 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 that comes out clear. And uh, lastly, uh, uh, Oliver, the issue of uh, a leaderless community, white community, it's worrisome for me. Okay. Because all these things that are racism, they show you that uh, there's no leadership amongst the white community. 
that I can argue given time. Mm. I'm going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much. Prophet OJ, in a minute. Uh, I'm so sorry. You're so pressed for time. Oliver, <laughs> good morning. Mm. Morning, sir. Go ahead. Yes, I'm saying my, my the blood of God is Oliver, at the center of everything is the colonial boot on the neck of uh, Africans. Uh, in other words, we, we can converse on all other matters uh, around the party, whatever reason. But at the center, it is that wealth is not distributed equally. And that is, that is actually at the center of the problem we are having in South Africans. And our political sphere, unfortunately, mm. has never focused on which vision we draw as a nation, which is a, an economic vision. You remember, Oliver, that uh, before, before the dispensation we are in, the fathers of the revolution agreed that let's tackle the political uh, agenda first, and thereafter we'll go to the economic agenda. Unfortunately, that never materialized mm, after mm. 1994. As a result, South Africa is still operating within a, an economic uh, vision vacuum. Mm. In other words, we are in a dark room in as far as the economic development. Even if, Oliver, right now, you go to any university in South Africa, ask any student, whether it is a PhD or uh, honors or master, ask him or her, what is the vision of this country currently? No one knows. Even the ministers in the cabinet, even yeah. parliament. Prophet OJ, I'm, yeah, I'm going to have to leave it there. Sorry, we're so pressed for time. I thank you so much for your call. Really, really do appreciate it. I'm going to take the news. On the other side of this, I'm going to... Uh, oh, hopefully still five more minutes of Christie's time. We were supposed to end this at 11. I also want to speak to Jeffrey Matenji, the producer of the book reading segment, uh, and just sort of get into his mind around uh, what 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 is what goes on behind it, how you as the listeners can contribute uh, to this particular segment. It's 11 o'clock. Let's take your news from Anne Musa. You are listening to Oliver Dixon on the Station of the Year. Nine minutes after 11 o'clock, you're listening to The Talking Point. My name is Oliver Dixon. Thank you so much for staying with us. We're in conversation with Christy van der Vestes and there's so much to unpack here. Oh my goodness, so, so, so much. Uh, one of one of the callers raised, for instance, the concept of Ordentlicate, which is a big part of the book, which we never got around to. Uh, I just realized you can't do this in, in 45 or 50 minutes. You certainly need uh, multiple segments of this to truly do the book justice. But Christy, just as a final question uh, to cadence this off, the book reading is coming to an end in the next two weeks here on on The Talking Point. What, to those who have been following it and to those who may have caught part of it, what is the one thing you want them to take away from this? Good one. Um, I have to say, um, if, uh, if, if I can uh, uh, use your, your, your generosity a, a bit longer, um, Oliver, just to just to, I just want to quickly respond to before I uh, turn to your question. I want mm. to respond to some of, of of what the the listeners have been asking about, and just to say that the, the question around the redistribution of wealth. I mean, I agree completely with OJ that that is in indeed the central problem of of South Africa, both um, during colonial and apartheid times, and and again uh, now in the democratic era, still persisting with us, those legacies of, of uh, socioeconomic inequality persisting into into um, the present time, also through what's now become structural poverty, structural unemployment, you know, where people are 40, 
45 years old and they've never worked in their lives, you know, so, uh. and so on. So that is absolutely, like, I completely agree with him. And that's, that's part of, and, and, and as we know in South Africa, there's a strong race class um, connection in uh. the sense that the vast majority of people who are living under the breadline are, are black people. And, uh. and this is a direct legacy from our past. And if, if we can't solve this, we, we are, that's, that, uh, I think that's all that why we have these difficulties c- country currently in our country, and and this is this is the biggest um, crisis for us to to solve if we want to resolve any of the other problems that we have. So uh-huh. so I, th- I think it's really central. And in my book, White Power in the Rise and Fall of the National Party, I did actually drill quite a bit into the reasons for the persistence of of socioeconomic inequality into the democratic uh-huh. era. Uh-huh. So um, just to just to point that sure. out. So and then also just in terms of Afri Forum and so in, uh, I've been on on panels and so on with with people from Afri Forum and Solid, Solidarity and so forth. And my my big position with with them has always been that they have to be uh, inclusive in their uh, in their politics and in their activities. But we see unfortunately that there's a strand in Afri Forum that that's getting uh, reinforcement by tapping into white right. You know the global white right. Mm, you know, mm. so if, if we think of the visit to the United States a few years ago, the appearance of Fox. Yeah, uh, exactly. So, so there's a so there's a strand, a strong strand within Afri Forum that's tapping into that global white right, and we we see we know as well with with Trumpism that that the the global white right is is in resurgence. So mm. across the world, we see white right populists, uh, you know, being. Um, Back onto podiums, attracting a lot of uh, support and so forth, and and these people work also. They've worked through through interconnections globally, internationally, and and so forth. And that's that's not a new thing, but it's being made much more easy now with social media and so on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So so that's so we have to read what's happening with the white right in our own country. We have to read it also globally and also and 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 see that if there's a, a resurgence here it is actually also to do with this global resurgence yeah. that, we, that we have Rusty, unfortunately we're going to have to leave it there <laughs> due to time <laughs> but thank you so much for this i we certainly have to do another conversation on this apart too i hope you'll be generous enough with your time again and, yeah, and, and have this I'm, conversation I'm happy with to us. do that and maybe i should just mention that there is a podcast so jeffrey matenji who's uh, um uh, eternally grateful for for this wonderful work with Fiona Ramsey as as the voice artist, and and there's a podcast that's been made available. So uh, you know, so it can be so people who've missed the 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 broadcast so far can can listen to the podcast. Jeffrey, in a minute, there. why did you choose this book? Uh, maybe I wanted to get fired. Sorry, Jeffrey Matenji is 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 our producer for the book. Hey, reading. Christy, Jeffrey. <laughs> hello, hello, Jeffrey. Yeah, no, Good I thought the first voice. episode will be fired or Afri Forum take us to court, but yeah. we're still here, so. Yeah. But we have Advocate Dugai Toby on our corner for pro rata. <laughs> no, I, 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 during section 189 of the SABC, I was supposed to be out of the building. They said, no, man, come do our drama. It's like, oh, okay, with 75% salary cut, I'll do this for free. So I went in there and like, what kind of box do I want to do? I wanted to do White Fragility by Robin Angelo, but I couldn't get the rights. And when I spoke to Christy, Kriti says, no, sure, why not? I had a lot of fight with the producer, uh, publishers to try and guess the rest. Kriti says, as I have give them. So <laughs> I wanted to do it because everybody zooms in into a black man, a black woman, our sexuality and what, what. Very rarely you see people zooming into a white woman. The Afrikaans white woman, yeah, very specifically. And for me, it's like, 
No, man, because I wanted to do other Christie's books. Like, no, but this one is focused on an African white woman. Mm. And for me, that was like, uh, we have to do this book. I mean, we must remember we did this book after Land Matters. I mean, yes, doing yes, Land yes. Matters in this country is already a risk. Yeah. Doing Christie's book, and I'm still here. I don't yeah. know. What's next? <laughs> What's the next book? This book is coming in an end in two weeks. What's next? The next one, we're going to do Sibathe uh, Rabasutu and the Woman in His Life. I thought this book was an easy book. And but we got into studio for rehearsal with Karabo Holeng and the author being Lise Homonama. Yo, 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 this book because I, I said I've done two political books, I yes. wanted to do something simple, I wanted to, sue, uh, to do a human story. Yeah, and we got into the studio. Karabo was just crying half the time. I literally had to do one episode a day, he's like, yeah. Go home. And then the next one that is going to follow is by Dr. Jerome Fukengwamakete. I'm a man, even that. I mean, Jerry is probably 65, he gets in studio, we rehearse. And he's crying, like, what do I do with this man? How yeah, do I? Yeah. Because this personal human story, you think they are easy when you read them. But when you have the people in studio, it's another story. The entire book is podcasted. It's available on the SFM website. Yep. Uh, the last two weeks of episodes, are they up yet? Yep. They're, we are up to date, Christia. She, she, up, she updates me more than me because I'm busy <laughs> in studio recording other books. We updated Christy, right? I think we're up to the 26th of, of Jan. So it's uh, we need... Uh, no, the, no, no, the, the, the new ones are there. The I new checked. ones are oh, there. Oh, the Great. new ones in. Yeah. Uh, okay. So Great. if you've Wonderful. missed any episodes, please do go onto the SFM website. It's sfm.co.za. Go to the podcast tab and you can find all the episodes of the book reading there. Christy van der and thank you so much for your time. Really, really do appreciate it. Jeffrey, hope to speak to you soon again when we preview the next book. Thank you so much for your time.